Good morning, church. How are the roads out there? Are they better now? Starting to thaw a little bit? It was pretty dicey this morning at 6.30, you know, and things went from dicey to challenging when I pulled in at the gas station and uh, tried to get a little top up and couldn't get the, uh, the release to open. It was frozen shut and it was freezing cold and I'm chipping away at it with my window scraper. And eventually got it open, got some gas in, but I thought as a reward, I'm going to bring away. I went into Starbucks and, uh, and ordered my Americano and that's when the alarm hit my phone. Uh, there's been an incident at Pickering. No radiation was leaked. Why do you say that? <laughs> no radiation. Okay, eight o'clock by then, and there was nobody here. And the parking lot was empty, and everything was dark. And that never happens around here. We, we, we get started pretty early. And I, I thought I was in one of those weird 1950s science fiction movies where the whole world had just passed me by. But it did start me thinking a little bit, these pop-up alerts on the phone, about how we get our news. Uh, for the most part, we know that, that people on certain sides of the political spectrum will gravitate to certain news outlets, and that will be the exclusive channel through which they receive their news. People on the other end of the spectrum will go to a different channel. I recall my parents every day, and to this day, in fact, they still get their news through a very old-fashioned thing called a newspaper. It comes every day to their house. Anybody remember those? Right? I thought it'd be kind of cool as an experiment to do this this morning as a church. I'm going to have everybody call it out, out loud, where they get their news. Okay, think about it for a second. Where do you get your news? Primarily, and on the count of three, we'll call it out. Ready? Where do you get your news? One, two, three, BBC. Let's do that again. Let me listen a little more closely. One, two, three. Did anybody say Jesus? <laughs> We're a church, after all, and if you're guessing, then the chances are that might be the right answer, but it would be a strange one, right? Many people don't realize this, but Jesus was, in fact, primarily in the new language, but... Just before the Sermon on the Mount, which we're going to come to a little bit later this morning, just before the Sermon on the Mount, we're told, this is Matthew chapter 4, in verse 23 it says, Jesus went throughout Galilee, he was teaching in the synagogues, he was preaching the good news of the kingdom, he was healing people of sickness and disease, and news about him spread all over Syria. He was proclaiming news. Good news. Now, there's a very important distinction in this text. It says he was teaching, but he was also proclaiming or preaching this news. Very often we associate preaching with telling people what they ought to do. Preaching is something that some pastor on harangue does for 30 minutes or so on a Sunday morning. But that was never the case, not in the ancient world. Preaching wasn't a religious function. It wasn't a religious word. The preacher was the town crier. To preach meant to give the news in the middle of the city square. When Jesus uses that word, or when it's used of him, that he was preaching the good news, it meant quite literally he was giving a news report about something that had happened. Not just news, but good news. You notice actually how much of our news is just the opposite right now? 
There's an old adage in the news world, I'm told, an editorial adage that says, if it bleeds, it leads, right? What Jesus was giving was good news. In fact, the word used to describe it is euangelion. Say that, euangelion. It's actually a mashup of two words. There's a little particle, eu, E-U, that gets stuck on the, mini, uh, on the beginning. That means good. So a eulogy is a good word that we say about somebody when they're not here. <laughs> Euphoria is a set of good feelings, right? You Probably has a different history, that word. Anyway, you add that little word, you, to the front of the word agalos, which means message, and you get a good message or good news is where we get the word angel. An angel is a message bringer, a messenger. Anyway, it's also the place, you angle us, where we get the word evangelical. That's our really trashed in our day, particularly in North America and particularly in the U.S. because it's become so associated with political agenda and power and, and wrangling. True story, there's, there's a denomination in the States called the Evangelical Free Church. A pastor in that denomination said he had a woman show up one Sunday who really had this deep, deep loathing for evangelicals. And she figured if sugar-free sodas are a drink with no sugar, if caffeine-free means no caffeine, going to the evangelical free church ought to mean there were no evangelicals. But that, that wasn't the case. In Bible times... An evangel meant a good word or a good news. Or the other word we used for it was a gospel. And that's what Jesus was doing. He was giving the good news, the gospel. And even people outside of the church have probably heard that word, the word gospel. But most people outside the church and sadly inside the church don't know, in fact, what the gospel was that Jesus came to bring. If he came to bring a gospel, good news, if he thought that somehow this was the greatest of all possible news, it's almost unthinkable to imagine that people have given their lives, their allegiance to him. But often it's exactly the case that they don't. That's why I think you picked a great weekend to be here and you picked a great year to be here. Because we're starting this morning a series that is going to spread out, you see a map on the back of your order of service, over the next few months, where we are really going to nestle up against the fire hydrant of the gospel. And for three chapters in the gospel of Matthew, in, uh, in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, you get from the lips of Jesus the very heart of the good news. It comes in the form of, of what you may know as the Sermon on the Mount. But what it is, is news. It's news that's meant to be transforming. And, and, and I'll guarantee you this, by the end of the service today, this is just an introduction, we won't actually get into the nitty-gritty of the Sermon on the Mount that's coming in the weeks ahead, but by the end of the, the sermon today, you will know what the good news is, and you will know why it can be such a major uh, incentive to change human life. And then you'll be ready, I hope, for the adventure 
of following Jesus through the Sermon on the Mount that begins next week. I want to start by looking at some verses that summarize the good news of Jesus. And I want to see if you can pick out a key phrase. There is a phrase that weaves its way through all of these passages, kind of like a golden thread. I'm going to see if you can identify what it is. I'm going to read the text. We'll have them up on the screen for you to follow along. The first is from the very beginning of the Gospel of Mark. This is Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the... Chooses his disciples. He goes on the road with them, and they have one message. This is Luke chapter 8, verse 1. It says, After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were there with him. When Jesus had chosen 12 disciples, we're told, this is Luke 9 now in verses 1 and 2, says, when Jesus had called the 12 together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons, to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Just a couple more examples. Go all the way to the end of the Gospels. After the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, he fe- Jesus spends his final days on earth talking about this one piece of news. Acts chapter 1, verse 3. It says, He appeared to the apostles. He gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. And over a period of 40 days, he spoke about the kingdom of God. And then you go to the very end of the book of Acts this story about the beginning of the church and you find Paul imprisoned in Rome. The last chapter of this book, it says in Acts 28, verse 31, that Paul proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So if you had to pick one phrase that weaves its way through all of the passages, one phrase that describes the good news what would it be? The good news is the kingdom of God. The good news is that now through Jesus, through his body, through his life, through his teaching, the kingdom of God, that is to say the the presence and the power of God is available. And anybody who wants it can be a part of it. And here's what's really tragic that thousands of churches, indeed probably millions of Christians, have substituted another gospel for the gospel of Jesus. It's the gospel that might be reduced to the minimum entrance requirements necessary to get into heaven. That's the gospel. The gospel is your ticket to get in. And a lot of people think the gospel is just meant to be this simple arrangement where you do as little as possible in order to secure your place at the great banquet in the sky. Now here's the problem. Not only does that diminish the life that God has for his people, but more importantly, where in the gospel? Show me the place. Where does Jesus ever say anything even remotely close to say, I have come to bring the good news about the minimum entrance requirements for getting into heaven when you die. It says is this, the time has come at last. The kingdom of God is here. 
It's time to revise your strategy for life. Think again. Follow me. Become my disciple. You see, Jesus' Jesus' gospel leads naturally to the formation of Jesus' disciples. When, When churches get the gospel wrong, they produce consumers of the merit of Jesus rather than disciples of the life of Jesus. Let me say that again. It's important. When we get the gospel wrong, we produce consumers of Jesus' merit rather than disciples of Jesus' life. It's like Jesus becomes a vendor of religious goods and services and we take what we need from the vending machine and then we get on with our life. Now, now, of course, the gospel includes forgiveness. That's what the cross was about, and the free gift of grace. And, of course, Jesus does promise that death is not the final word on our lives. Resurrection means that, that our lives are measured in an eternal span. But the gospel is not just those things. Jesus makes it really clear from the very beginning to the final word that he is there to inaugurate a new kingdom. And the point of his message, the thrust seems to be the availability of the kingdom of God. That his life was meant to model what that looks like. His ministry was meant to manifest the kingdom. His whole mission was to extend the kingdom into the world. And the great injunction that he gives is to pursue the kingdom above everything else. Isn't that the heart of the Sermon on the Mount? Seek first what? The kingdom of God and his righteousness. And everything else gets added on. And yet today still there are millions of Christians, thousands of churches who cannot tell you what the kingdom of God is. And so what we're going to be doing this year for the first few months is to become students of the kingdom. We're going to do that by walking very slowly and intentionally through the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to get a basic understanding of what this good news is. What is this kingdom that's become available? And I want to acknowledge right off the top that that's hard because that's wrapped up in language that we don't use. And I know Canada still is a a monarchy of sorts. Symbolically, we still recognize a queen as our sovereign, but, but that's largely a symbolic and a historical arrangement. Pardon me if you're a monarchist of if I've offended you. I don't mean to. But what I mean is that the language of kings and kingdoms doesn't have a lot of currency for us anymore. And we need to do a little bit of work to get ourselves back into the world, into the frame of mind where we understand what that means. And maybe the best way is just to start with you. Because you have a a kingdom. Everybody has a kingdom, at least in the biblical sense of the word. Your kingdom is that tiny little sphere in your life where what you want goes, where your word goes. This is the, 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 the place, the, the limits of your authority and of your will and purpose. And this goes all the way back to Genesis. It says in Genesis 1, God said, let's make men and women, let's make them in our image, and according to our likeness, and let them have dominion. Dominion is a kingdom word. That's kingdom language. Let them reign. Let them have influence. That's part of what it means to be made in the image of God. So the kingdom is the range of your effective will. Kids learn this, right? They learn first about the kingdom of their own body. As they learn to talk and walk and say no. 
They're learning to exercise this little kingdom. As they grow older, they learn that it's not just their body. There is space around their body, personal space, private space. When somebody invades your space, how do you feel? Right? They've stepped into your kingdom. That's your realm. And the only people that get to come in, get to come in by your invitation, with your permission. Otherwise, it's criminal. Right? And then as years progress, we, we begin to develop a kingdom that's even wider. And we fill it with stuff. We have a home and we have possessions. Have any of you ever been through a robbery, a burglary in your home or your car? It's not just the sense of loss, is it? It's the sense of violation. Somebody stepped into my kingdom, into my world. This was my place. The question the gospel provokes is at its most basic level, whose kingdom are you living in? That's really important. When we think about the language of kingdom, we know that we have a physical location. You have a physical home, and that says a lot about who you are. People who, who do identity studies... It's actually a realm of research, identity studies. They say that geography is a key part of identity, and you know that, right? Those who have come new to Canada, right? You're not home, right? This doesn't feel like home yet for you. Um, but you're also not living in the place that was your home. And your identity gets all kind of lost in the middle of that, right? And it takes a long time for a new physical place to become your emotional home, to become your kingdom, right? It would be just as preposterous of me to say, listen, I've been to Kenya, I've been to Rwanda, I must be African. Of course I'm not African. I've been to Calcutta, I must be Indian. No, I'm not, I'm Canadian, whatever that means these days. You have a physical location that says something about who you are, about your kingdom. But here's, here's the important thing. You also have a spiritual location. And your spiritual location is just as real, just as important as your physical one. You begin to understand? Your spiritual location. That's Jesus. He's really getting that idea when he talks about the kingdom of God. And that's the news he came to announce. When you live in that place where God's will and God's reign and God's presence and God's purpose when they have final authority, when they have kingship, what it means to live in that spiritual location is that nobody ultimately can threaten your well-being. It means that you have the abundance of heaven to support you. It means that never are you ultimately at risk. That's what the Apostle Paul, I think, was getting at when he said, I'm convinced of this, Romans 8. I'm convinced that neither death nor life Angels, nor demons, the present, the future, no powers, height, depth, and nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God that is, notice this, from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That's Paul's language for the kingdom of God. In Christ. He uses that expression, on Christo, in Christ, 164 times in his letters. That's his way of saying, that's what it means to live in the presence, power, purpose, and will of God, the, the kingdom of God, to be in Christ. This is what makes the Sermon on the Mount so penetrating, so true, so good. The reason that you can turn the other cheek is that you live in a kingdom 
where justice is ultimately assured, even though you don't feel it in the moment. The reason that you can not worry about tomorrow is that your tomorrow is in the hands of the king. The reason that you can store up treasures in heaven, not here on earth, is that you know the abundance of heaven belongs to your heavenly father and you're in his care. You start to understand? Jesus isn't just some guru who walks around producing these pithy little sayings. The brilliance of his sayings in the Sermon on the Mount is rooted in the truth of the news. The good news that the kingdom of God is here. Whose kingdom are you living in? We all have one, right? And somehow the the coalition, the amalgam of all these little kingdoms. People come together, kingdoms become neighborhoods, neighborhoods become cities, there's corporations and nations, there's economic and political and cultural kingdoms, all of them expressions of power. All of that put together, that whole conglomerate, is called in the Bible the kingdoms of the earth. Or sometimes just the singular, the kingdom of the earth. The Bible sets up this little contrast. It sets up a contrast between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the earth. And Jesus says, on the one hand, there's this domain, this kingdom of God. It exists right now. It's a sphere in which things happen the way God has designed them to happen. Paul describes it this way in Romans 14. He says, the kingdom of God isn't a matter of rules. It's not about what you eat and drink. It's about righteousness and peace and joy. That's God's kingdom. But then there's the kingdoms of the earth. And it begs the question, how how are things going now? Well, where do you get your news? Nuclear weapons in North Korea? Nuclear alerts in Pickering? Escalating tension in Iran? Devastating wildfires in Australia? Racism? Terrorism? Political polarization? We're not even sure if we can trust that the news is the news. Or is it fake news? Jesus had a plan. The kingdom of God. What's up there come to life down here. That's the plan. Most of you will know the, probably the most famous prayer in history, the one you know as the Lord's Prayer. You'll know that it's embedded there in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to get to that when it comes up in the, in the teaching and the Gospel of Matthew. And often we think we know it because we've memorized it. But do we really know it? Do we, do we know what we're praying for? Because the news is hidden right there in the prayer. Ken Davis talks about a chapel service that happened in the locker room of the Chicago Bears way back in the 1980s when they, they won the Super Bowl. Any football fans from that era? Do you remember a linebacker that they had in the Chicago Bears in the 1980s? He was a monster of a man, William Perry. But he went by the name The Refrigerator. Yeah, William The Refrigerator Perry. In the locker room there, Mike Ditka asked the fridge to pray the Lord's Prayer before the game. The Bears quarterback, Jim McMahon, said the fridge doesn't know the Lord's Prayer. (laughs) In fact, he says, there's no way the fridge knows the Lord's Prayer, and I'll bet you $50 the fridge doesn't know the Lord's Prayer. 
And the chaplain thought, well, it's kind of weird to be betting on the Lord's Prayer, but okay. <laughs> so everybody closed their eyes, and the fridge began to pray. Now I lay me down to sleep. <laughs> pray the Lord my soul to keep. And Jim McMahon shook his head, and he handed the money over to the chaplain and said, I was sure he didn't know the Lord's Prayer. <laughs> A lot of people think they know the, the Lord's Prayer, but they've never really stopped to think about what they're praying. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom of God, the effective range of God's will, where God's purposes are accomplished. Many people in the church actually think that the Lord's Prayer means, God, get me out of here so I can be up there with you. Jesus didn't say to pray that. He said, pray this way. Oh God, oh God, make up there, come to life down here. Not just that, Jesus said, it's already begun. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. You can repent, you can change your life. You can believe the good news, you can stake your life on these things. He said, this is breaking news, the time has come. How is it that the time came? What happened? What made today different than yesterday? Well, you should know the answer to that because we just spent weeks celebrating Christmas. What happened? Jesus happened. He's here. The time has come. It's an audacious claim, isn't it? That Jesus brings the kingdom in his presence, in his body, in his life, in his words, in his healings, which are often the central point in, in, in the life peace-bringing business. In his death, in his resurrection, in all of these ways, what's up there is coming down here. It's the most audacious claim in human history. The king is here. He comes without ego. He comes with humility. Carpenter, a servant, not on a throne, but amazingly on a cross. Sermon on the Mount. Folks, we're, we're going to spend a significant part of our time this year. We're going to try and master it, or at least we're going to try and be mastered by it. According to a Gallup poll, over half of Christians don't even know who, who gave the Sermon on the Mount. Who gave the Sermon on the Mount, by the way? Yeah. 12% of the people who were asked said that it's called the Sermon on the Mount because it was given on horseback. Yeah. How important is this section in Scripture? Harvey Cox, professor at Harvard University, said, It is the most luminous most quoted, most analyzed, most contested, most influential moral and religious discourse in all of human history, this teaching of Jesus. Why? Because he got lucky? He was just in the zone that day. Turns out he was a great motivational speaker? No. The Sermon on the Mount is not general moral advice about how to be nice to each other, and it's not a series of random lovely sayings by a guru. It's not a list of rules. Let me tell you what it is. One of the most beautiful statements I've ever read about the Sermon on the Mount. It is a bold, brilliant, fearless, life-transforming, trumpet-blast, 
to come join King Jesus in his divine conspiracy to bring up there down here and redeem the world. The question is, will the gospel of Jesus be your gospel? Is it your good news? And what kingdom are you living in? I got lots more notes, but I, I think that's lots for today, isn't it? I hope over the next few, to leaf through Matthew 5, 6, and 7. By the time we're out the other side of this series, you'll have committed much of it to memory, and, and that's a good thing. We're going to immerse ourselves in those three chapters. We're going to sit there right at Jesus' feet. We're going to learn what it is that he taught. We're going to listen to what he proclaimed We're going to ask for Jesus' presence and we're going to try and do what he says up there, coming down here. What kingdom are we going to be living in? Let me pray for us as we set off on that journey together. Heavenly Father, um, more than just the gift of understanding, I pray that the words of Scripture would be a source of life and life change. That these ancient words, beautiful, powerful, memorable, telling words, could be so formative in our lives that that little disciple-making community that Jesus began could be extended just a little further all these centuries later, right here, right at Mississauga City Baptist Church. And that in all kinds of ways, both personal and public, both in our inner lives and our outer example, the kingdom of God could nudge its way just a little bit closer in this generation for the sake of the citizens of this city and through the witness of all those who are privileged to bear the name of Jesus Christ. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen.